You guys have got me thinking a lot about looking for a different provider, but I can't imagine ever having that conversation with my group about leaving them. As a doula, I find many of my clients talk to me about vaginal dryness while breastfeeding. So the one study that's out there looked specifically at, I think, postpartum hemorrhage and the need for IV. And they found that in zero cases, women needed... Well, let's just give you a little Pitocin. It's right here. That's, I think, what we have to be careful of in this country because we are overusing those interventions. You might choose to have an orgasm. You might choose to have an orgasm. (laughs) It's like, sure, I'll take one of those. (laughs) I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board-certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. So some of our listeners were curious about our co-sleeping practices. The question is, did you guys co-sleep with your babies? Did you co-sleep? I definitely did co-sleep. I don't remember what I thought I would do when I was pregnant. I'm sure I had all sorts of opinions about things. I really don't remember what I thought. But I remember most distinctly when I was getting, Alex was initially in a, in a bassinet on the other side of our room. And of course, I was getting up, I think, like every hour and a half or something like that. And I remember distinctly that I would get up on my feet before I would even fully wake up. Like he would make a peep and I was just on my feet and moving toward him, which I'm sure a lot of uh, parents relate to if you're, you know, when you're that attuned. But I remember once picking him up in my arms and I felt my knees were buckling. I just felt like I was so asleep that I could just fall down with him. And I thought, this is, this is so difficult. This is so scary to me that, I, that I'm getting him when I'm so terribly exhausted that I just started co-sleeping. And it was just the best, happiest thing I ever did. I got so much more sleep. He got better sleep. And I did the same with my daughter. Did you? I, I do remember that with my first Lola, I definitely slept with her um, like on my chest the first couple of nights. Oh, yeah. Like skin to skin. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I did not intend to go sleep with my first. And I did really try to keep her in separate sleeping space. She was in the room but in a separate, in a separate um, cradle or bassinet. And she wasn't, she didn't love the co-sleeping situation. It didn't work well. I think like I would bring her into the bed at night and try to fall back asleep, but she would never fall back asleep. She um, is still, of all my children, the one who will sleep anywhere by herself, happy to be alone. Um, so I didn't really co-sleep much with my first, but I definitely did with my second and third. Like, for a long time and right from the beginning and in bed and they really never had sleep schedules. And, um, I did find that I got more sleep that way. Mm -hmm. Certainly if you are exclusively breastfeeding bed, either bed sharing or, um, a co-sleeper situation, I think relieves a lot of nighttime stress. Yeah. And also you don't have to fully wake up in order to breastfeed them. You can just turn over and the baby can breastfeed and you're just dozing back asleep and you don't have to do anything you don't have to officially go put them somewhere and get yourself back in bed because for me that was a lot of the challenge it was falling back to sleep and then if I didn't fall back to sleep quickly this anxiety would kick in and then I would think oh great 
you know, it just didn't help the way my mind was working and the way I felt anxious about sleep. So definitely worked for me. The biggest thing I had to manage, as I think a lot of people do, is I didn't want my husband to accidentally clock the baby in the head when he was turning around in bed. I'm a big fan, though. Big fan. I think we both are, especially even if it's just um, sharing a room. It just I was always much more comfortable knowing that I could hear my baby Mm -hmm. without you know, having to go through a baby monitor Mm -hmm. or just to be close to them. And then the baby doesn't have to wake up and start crying in order to get you awake to breastfeed. The baby just kind of snuggles and breastfeeds and no, even the baby sleeps a little bit better. All right. So let's jump into the questions from our listeners this week. Here's the first one. You guys have got me thinking a lot about looking for a different provider, but I can't imagine ever having that conversation with my group about leaving them. Do other people struggle with this? And what do you recommend I say or do? Well, the first thing I recommend you do is shop around. And you definitely don't need to tell your current provider that you're doing so because this is just your business. You're hiring someone to be your attendant at your birth. So I would say if you can, ask your childbirth educator or your doula or friends who had the kind of birth that you would like to have, who they saw. If you're interested in midwives, look for any midwifery group around you and call them and see if they offer a meet and greet. They sometimes do them in person. They sometimes do them via Zoom these days, but have some kind of meet and greet. Bring all your questions. You have every right to bring all the important questions that you learn from this podcast or from your childbirth class and um, and go check them out. I do always recommend checking out at least two other providers if that's available to you because I think it leads to a more interesting discussion with your partner when you have a bunch to choose from. It takes away some of the intensity of like, do I stay with this one provider I've been with for so long versus this new one that I really kind of liked but I'm not sure. Just meet with a whole bunch and just say, you know, this is how I felt in this location. This is how I felt about that person in that group. I liked how this one answered our questions. Um... You know, if you have any kind of condition, uh, medical condition that they address, then you might really feel best and safest with the way one particular provider answers that, and that might be your indication. By law, you have the right to obtain your medical record. So my suggestion is just call the receptionist at your current obstetrician or provider and ask for your records, and that is it. Sometimes the new group will even obtain those for you when you sign a release. I don't like to coach people through having that conversation with their provider because we don't need to invite fear-inducing comments from them or guilt. Like, you know, sometimes they can bring nonsense into the conversation like, well, don't you think I'm qualified or don't you realize I've been birthing, attending babies this long or you've been with me all these years, you're, you know, now is when you're leaving. Why would you ever volunteer yourself for that kind of conversation? I say just find the right provider. Remember your loyalty is to your baby and to yourselves. It's not to the provider. It doesn't matter how long you've been seeing them. You have every right to find the one that feels right to you. You can always go back to them after you have your baby for your annuals, or you can just stick with the new group. Just to add to that, I think also it's you know fair to say that if you are leaving a practice of a large group practice for something like a home birth or a birth center birth, and you feel that you owe your provider an explanation, like you said, you certainly don't. But if somebody has a, um, if, if, if somebody feels that they want to have that conversation, I think it's very reasonable to 
um, explain that you are interested in a, in a birth situation where you're going to have the provider there to attend your birth who is there for all your prenatal appointments. So that's one of the reasons that people choose home birth is because they, they want to have the midwife that they see for every visit be there for their birth. And that's, there is never going to be that guarantee in a large group practice. If you don't like the person, like you said, you don't have to say a word. <laughs> just go. <laughs> I'm just afraid that the provider um, will make them feel worse. All right. Next question. Trisha, can you talk about prodromal labor? <laughs> this really amuses me. I've been in labor for 12 days now, and it's driving me crazy. I find that so endearing. <laughs> she's been in labor for 12 days, and she's texting us like, help, <laughs> please edit and publish the episode and get back to me before I've been in labor for, you know. Can we do a live call with this poor I woman? I mean, seriously, we need to get her on the line now. Yeah, 12 days is a long time to be in prodromal labor. And the fact that she clarified it with the fact by saying it's driving me crazy is sounds honest. <laughs> not so, yeah, sounds <laughs> poor thing. Um, but is it to Trisha? Is it very intense? I mean, what is is it like? Is it kind of um, a nuisance because it keeps you up at night and there's just this mild thing happening, or do you feel like you're in intense labor when this is going on? No, it can be more off and on. It's definitely more of an off and on thing, especially if it's been going on this long. Typically, prodromal labor doesn't last more than three days. So I'm curious what number of baby this is for her, because if it's not her first baby, if it's a second, third, or fourth baby, sometimes you do get these um, more prodromal-type symptoms, but they're usually more mild. The, the key to prodromal labor is to do everything you can possibly do to forget that you're experiencing some type of labor contraction. You want to just live your life as if you're not in labor and try to get your mind off focusing on, are these contractions getting closer? Are they getting stronger? Is this it? And you know, looking for changes that indicate that labor is progressing. If you can just kind of get your mind off it and relax, then it tends to actually help you get into active labor. So the most important things are that you continue to eat normally, that you rest adequately, which means getting good sleep at night, the best that you can do, and staying very well hydrated. Sometimes dehydration and exhaustion can be the reasons that we get prodromal labor and can't get into active labor. So electrolyte drinks, coconut water, magnesium drinks before bed to help you sleep, bone broth for, for nutrition if you're having a hard time eating solid foods, um, watch a movie, a lot of people, a lot of people in early labor like to bake a cake well, I, for, their I joke, for their baby, a birthday cake. I joke about movies because if it's the kind of movie my husband would normally pick, it's like it would keep the cervix so tight you'd be afraid to have a baby and bring a baby into the world. It's like <laughs> these typical, yes, yeah, you just want a movie that makes you happy, a movie that makes you like a romantic comedy, something that makes you feel relaxed. Exactly. <laughs> a romantic comedy is the perfect thing. So either a comedy or a romantic comedy because romantic will help get the oxytocin flowing. And the laughter is very good for relaxing. So stress, as we know, is a big inhibitor of active labor. So warm baths. Some people will go actually and get a massage, um, go for acupuncture. You might choose to have an orgasm. You might choose to have an orgasm. I like that. <laughs> yeah. You might choo choose to have somebody give you an orgasm or have an orgasm, like, however you want to do sure, it. Sure, I'll take one of those. <laughs> 
Yeah. You know, well, the se- Order it out. sex is sex is usually one of the last things we feel like doing, but semen has prostaglandin, which is one of the yes. drugs that they can give women to soften the cervix when they're inducing. And of course, we produce oxytocin when we're doing anything from hugging all the way up to having an orgasm where we're secreting oxytocin. So anything on that scale, yeah, this pitocin is synthetic oxytocin, but the natural hormones you and your partner can create have no side effects there you can't take too much of it (laughs) and they're more effective so and enjoyable yeah i mean well potentially enjoyable i've had some women i'm 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 thinking more like massage to get oh yeah yeah Yeah, i've had some women say like they're having sex they kind of overdo it a little like they're just feeling like it's clinical like let's get to it let's get the baby and you you want to mind your thoughts and make sure you're in a good mental place and you're feeling happy and relaxed as much as possible and you've got to Make sure your partner keeps you in that state. They have to understand not to do anything to add to your your anxiety or stress that the baby isn't coming yet. Right. And the other thing about sex is it's important to make sure that you haven't ruptured your membranes if you're going to have actually have sex. Yes, thanks for remembering that. But you can still have an orgasm without having sex. Nipple stimulation is also a helpful way to get oxytocin going, and you can do that in a warm shower. You can do that through touch, massage, um, walking. Did I ever tell you the nipple stimulation story I have? Can I tell you? Yeah. So one of my couples from Greenwich took my class years ago and they were seeing their doctor and at the appointment, the husband said to the doctor, uh, doctor, as an alternative to Pitocin, should labor stall, would you be supportive of, uh, our doing nipple stimulation? And the couple sat there on the edge of their seats, looking at the doctor, waiting for a response. And the doctor went, uh, no, because I can control the Pitocin. I can't control the nipple stimulation. <laughs> and, I, and I said, that's what you get for asking another man permission to touch your wife's breasts. <laughs> you only have to ask her. You don't ask a third party for permission. You get some privacy. You see what she feels like doing, how she feels like being touched. And that's the end of the story. Uh, yeah, and that actually is a very typical response and the reason that sometimes providers respond that way is because nipple stimulation is that effective mm-hmm. and it can cause really strong contractions and of course in our fear-based medical obstetric culture we like to monitor everything about labor and birth and um, the fact that nipple stimulation is effective can make providers worried that they are overstimulating the mother or overstimulating the uterus and, um, well, I think we didn't touch on the fact that you, prodromal labor is often a result of the baby not being properly positioned. And so we've talked about this in a lot of our episodes, getting your baby's head in the proper position so that it can adequately apply pressure to the cervix is essential for the labor process to get into the mode it needs to get into. So doing spinning babies techniques or taking a walk, doing stairs or hills or um, even walking along a road with a curb where you have one foot up and one foot down. All these things can help the baby twist and move down and get the head in proper alignment to help get labor going. That's the reason chiropractic care also is helpful. Uh, There's some herbs, blue cohosh. You can do castor oil. Sometimes therapeutic rest in the hospital is ordered or even sweeping the membranes, but these are a little bit further down the line interventions. 
Okay, Trisha, this came from a doula, and she wrote, As a doula, I find many of my clients talk to me about vaginal dryness while breastfeeding. Is this to be expected, and is there anything that can be done about it? I have never heard of that, Trisha. What's, is this common? Very. Wow. Okay. Totally. Absolutely. Why? Unfortunately, the hormones of breastfeeding tend to inhibit the hormones that keep our vagina well hydrated. Hmm. So it is very common, and most women experience it, and it is um, temporary. Once your period comes back, once you start menstruating regularly again, it usually gets better. But the solution to it is that if, if, it doesn't, if it's uncomfortable, then you use lubrication. I, I'm glad that someone asked this question because what I would have assumed is that there was a lubrication shortage because so few postpartum women are up for having sex because they're just so incredibly exhausted and touched out. I just would have figured it had something to do with the mind more than uh, breastfeeding. Remember, too, that in the early weeks of breastfeeding, uh, really in the first six months, our bodies are naturally trying to prevent pregnancy. So vaginal dryness is one way to do that. Preventing sex is an excellent way (laughs) of preventing pregnancy. Exactly. (laughs) Outstanding. Down to Birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. And Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sits bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E.com, and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH. I'm thinking about having a third child, and I have heard that the third baby can be a wild card as far as what to expect from the birth. Is that true? What can I do to help my body have the best birth the third time around? It's my understanding that there is no rhyme or reason to how each birth will go beyond the actual details around that birth. For example, the care the mother is taking to ensure she's hydrated, good fetal positioning, how is she doing emotionally? I think these are always the drivers in any birth. To say that the third is a wild card sounds like a bit of a, you know, I don't know if wives tale is the term, but it just doesn't sound like a very helpful thing to believe. Trisha, you're, you're smiling and I've got to just stop before I continue and find out why you're, am I wrong? Is there something no, here to no, the third baby? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it is, it, it may be a wives tale, but it's, it's very um, prevalent wives tale in midwifery and obstetrics. Um, I don't think that there's a whole lot of validity to it. I can't give you the reasons why people say that. Basically what they mean is that this is why I, this is where I think it comes from. Your first birth takes the longest. Your second one is generally shorter. And when it comes to your third, they say it's a wild card as far as we don't know if it's going to be longer or shorter than your second. That's, I believe, what she's referring to. So here's my perspective, because I just want to come at it a little differently now that we've covered that, because that's helpful. You answered the question. But let me 
let me give it to you this way. I had a refresher class last Friday night on Zoom. So I had, a, I think, seven couples who've taken my class before. Now they're pregnant with babies number two and three, and they just came in for a refresher class. And one of my moms who took my class a few years ago, and she's pregnant again, you know, at the beginning of every refresher class, we spend about 30 minutes where I just check in with everyone emotionally. And I'm like, so what's going on for you guys? Let's talk about how you're feeling, expecting another baby, what you know, what emotions are you going through? What's, what are you struggling with right now? And they usually share things like, I feel like I'm not giving this baby any time or attention. I was so much more aware in my first pregnancy of where I was every week. Or they talk about the impossibility of loving another baby as much as they love their first. But I had this mom who just started, her lips were quivering and she started just crying while we were talking. And I thought, oh, she's got something really pretty heavy to share. So when we get to her, you know, let's see, let's see what it is. And when she spoke, she was crying and crying. And she said, well, my first birth was so beautiful. It went so perfectly. And I'm just panicking that my second birth won't be. And what I've noticed is that when women are pregnant a second or a third time, I think especially a second time, they absolutely replay their first birth over and over and over. If they had preeclampsia the first time, they think they're going to get it the second time. If they had a breech baby the first time, they think they're going to have a breech baby the second time. And they just relive it. Oh, I went two weeks late. I'm probably going to go two weeks late this time. Or So even when she had a great birth, she's literally just crying tears because she's afraid it won't be. So what I want to say is the attachment we have and the beliefs we form around the next birth are my bigger concern for women. So if it serves you to think that it's a wild card, that's one thing. Um, but I don't really, I don't know that it does. I would just, I, you want to say things like, I give birth easily. You know, I, I take care of myself. I'm working on fetal positioning. I'm increasing the likelihood of a beautiful, easy birth. What else can we do? I agree with you completely. I really think this simply comes from the fact that if you look at the statistics of labor, Second babies come faster than the first the vast majority of the time. And what you don't see is that third babies come even faster than the second. They're either similar or maybe slightly longer. I, I just think somehow in the birthing community, this became a thing. Well, the third, we don't know if it's going to be whatever. Yeah. But it's like how people I, say like bad things happen in threes. Like don't tell someone yeah. who's suffered one yeah. or two bad things that something else is going to happen. Um, look, what matters is that you empower yourself. It's such an overused word that I'm, I'm always reluctant to use it. But to empower yourself is to control what's in your control. The care you take of yourself, pra practicing yoga, practicing any kind of deep breathing, meditation, fetal positioning, go on spinningbabies.com and work on it anything that's going to make you feel well physically and emotionally and mentally, nothing can top that. Nothing is going to top that. Also, just to be clear, I think when they, when she's re referring to this as a wild card, they're only talking about length of labor. I don't think she's talking about, I don't think she's actually talking about like, Oh no, I do. I do Trisha. Well then, then let's just be clear that in the birthing world, it's the third is about length of labor. That whole thing about, it being 
un, you know, hit or miss, wild card. We don't know. It's. I'm glad you. Yes. I'm glad you clarified yes. because I'm qu- not about whether you're going to have a vaginal birth or a horrible right or an easy birth or a long difficult. I understand. Yeah. I think that about, is what she's asking because I've heard people yeah. ask things like this before, and I always go another direction with it. But I do. I'm glad you clarified that you are only talking about the duration of labor because I'm pretty sure she was thinking, "Oh my gosh, what's in store?" It's a big question. Just focus on what you can, and we have so much information about how to how to prepare for an easier birth that just focus on those things and feel happy and keep yourself in a good place. Here's the next one. If I'm trying to conceive while breastfeeding on demand, my 17-month-old, do I need to make any changes to feedings? So the short answer is no, so long as you have your period. If you are... 17 months out and you still haven't started menstruating again, then reducing breastfeeding will help your period come back and then you would be able to conceive. If you are regularly menstruating and ovulating, then there is no need to make any changes to your breastfeeding schedule. Great. Simple. Let's do another. I've just heard about the idea of baby led weaning. Would love to hear more about the benefits or drawbacks to this approach. Does any one approach to introducing solids pair better with exclusive breastfeeding? Well, I'll take a stab at it. I did this. I never knew what kind of weaning I would do with my babies, but once I was a breastfeeding mom in both cases, the only thing that worked for me or made sense for me and my babies was for them to drive, basically. So when it was time for them to have solids, you, you just recognize it. I remember the pediatrician saying months before my son was ready to try introducing food, Um, but really they're reaching for food. You can't stop a human being from going for food. So when you're eating, they're going to be opening their mouth and reaching for your food. And then, you know, they're ready to eat. I don't know if there's an answer to this. Everything was just instinctual. We had our routine for breastfeeding. I woke up, breastfed my baby. And then, um, I think I just started offering them banana and I made, you know, squash or I gave them avocado and I just started offering them food and, as they started eating more, they still breastfed very, very frequently for either hydration or for comfort. But I just played with it. It didn't matter to me because it was all good. It was all nutrition. It was just um, very much art and very little science. That's the only thing that really worked for me. Trisha, do you have advice on this beyond what, what I experienced? Well, say with my first, which was now 16 years ago, I took the whole approach of I was very eager to introduce solid food and I took the whole approach of the pureed food and I I definitely didn't do rice cereal, even though that was recommended by my pediatrician, but I started around six months with, you know, spoon feeding the pureed food and made the homemade baby food and, you know, went through all that for a couple of months before I introduced more solid food. But by the second and third, I didn't do any of that. I, I naturally did this concept of whatever we're eating as a family, the baby eats. And again, right around six or seven months when my children started to reach for things or look interested in whatever was on my plate, I'd simply cut it up in very small pieces, put it in front of them, and they would use their hands to pick it up and put it in their mouth. And we never did spoon feeding and we never did pureed foods. And I thought that was far better, far easier. And it just, it was, again, it just was like, it happened because it made sense 
with subsequent children to just do it that way it was easier. So now, Tricia, whoever heard our Q&A episode a couple of months ago is wondering if you were giving your babies hot wings and chocolate milk as their first foods because we learned all about you and your food preferences in that episode. Anyway, well, I, I, I think I, <laughs> I, did, I wasn't usually serving hot wings and chocolate milk for dinner. Here's a little hot sauce for you. Um, but I'm sure it wasn't, you know, I was probably my kids were a year, a year and a half old. That's only when you took them out to a bar. I got it. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, exactly. Then I might let them suck on a hot wing. <laughs> um, but yes, I think this way of introducing solid foods is a far better approach. And I'm glad it's actually catching on and has a term that kind of is not, a, it doesn't make a lot of sense, the terminology, but <laughs> the concept works great. Okay, Tricia, here's one on haplocks. It says, I'm getting conflicting information on the haplock while giving birth. The hospital tour informed us it was necessary. Hmm. And while my doctor said it was not, another doctor in her office told me, we can just wait and see, which felt patronizing because I wanted a commitment that they wouldn't bring this up during labor without a medical necessity. I know they plan on pressuring me once I'm there. Well, right there, I want to say, why aren't you looking into other providers? Because your intuition is definitely speaking loudly. When I asked why they might want or need to do it, they said in case of an emergency. So I said, if there is an emergency, I hope a doctor or nurse can install an IV very quickly. I just can't imagine putting my complete focus on my birthing, on birthing my baby while I have a needle in my arm for no apparent reason other than, quote, in case of emergency. However, I'm beginning to feel that I may have to compromise on this one. What are your thoughts? I love this woman's perspective and her intuition because she is spot on on this whole topic. What do you say, Tricia? Well, I say that it is routine in most hospitals to put in an IV upon admittance to the hospital, but that does not mean that you cannot refuse that. Well, it doesn't. Um, it doesn't mean it's evidence based, and it, it doesn't. doesn't mean that's right. It, well, it's not. In part, it's not evidence based because there are very few studies to look at whether it's it, it is um, a worthwhile procedure or not. There's really only one study out there on it, but. I think more importantly is to think about the reasons that we put an IV in place and then to make a personal choice about whether you feel that that's important or not. And what she said in her question is they do it because in case of emergency, that's one reason. It's also used for IV fluids. It's used for antibiotics if you need them in labor. It's used to administer, it's used to administer Pitocin either in labor or the standard postpartum injection that's given with the birth of the placenta. So you don't have, you don't have the intramuscular injection. If you have an IV in place, they, they put it in through the IV. Um, if you're going to have an epidural, if you needed a cesarean, if you had a postpartum hemorrhage, and of all of those reasons, most of them, you can know going into your birth, whether you are going to need them or not. IV fluids, if you're allowed to eat and drink in labor, you're not going to need them. If you're GBS negative, you're not going to need the antibiotics. Pitocin is something that, you know, you can decide later with your care provider if that's something you're going to need or want in labor. Um, so really the only thing, or in epidural pain management, that's also, again, something you can decide in labor if that's, you know that's not going to be part of your birth plan. All of these reasons would lead me to say you do not need an IV. The only exception would be the postpartum hemorrhage. So in the case of an emergency postpartum hemorrhage, which is very uncommon, to have an IV would be helpful. But again, we're talking about a rare occurrence, 
And you're also dealing with, you know, providers who can put in an IV um, quickly if need be. So the one study that's out there looked specifically at, I think, postpartum hemorrhage and the need for IV. And um, they found that in zero cases, women needed emergency IV placement. In about 8% of births, women needed urgent, which is not emergency. Urgent just means, okay, we're seeing a situation that we don't like, something given IV, whether that's fluids or antibiotics or whatever would be helpful, we're going to put in, put in an IV. So I think you just have to, it's, it comes down to personal choice. What really matters is that you feel confident and comfortable in your choice and that that choice is respected if you choose to decline it. And it is standard at almost every hospital. Yeah. I mean, I would just say that a haplock is attached to nothing. So there is no argument for a haplock beyond that of let's save ourselves the few seconds it takes to put this in if and when we need to hook you up to some kind of IV. So have a haplock in the hand in the hand that's attached to nothing is just, you know, I think women have every right to say, I don't want that. I see what you're saying. The reason if I'm just going to give you the provider's perspective, I'm going to yeah. give, I'm going to play the devil's advocate and be the, be the provider or the nurse here saying, if I am caring for a patient who suddenly has a massive postpartum hemorrhage or suddenly needs an emergency cesarean section, the last thing I want to have to worry about is placing an IV. So in some cases, getting the IV in, in some women is, can be difficult. I think there's a big distinction between being hooked up to an IV and having a HEPLOC though. So the HEPLOC, not attached to anything, is, you know, it's, it's a mild intervention. It's there. It's painful to have it put in. There's risk of infection. There's risk of it being an annoyance. To me, it's like a little bit, um, it's like the, the idea of like walking in the hospital and putting on the hospital gown and getting the HEPLOC. It's like this psychological thing that it does to you that it kind of makes you, puts you in that different headspace of, of being in a medical environment and being a patient. And if you know that those things are going to disturb your peace and confidence, then I would decline them. But if you know that getting a HEPLOC is like, eh, you know, to you, it's like getting a finger prick. Some women actually would probably feel a lot safer having it because they'd say, you know, if something happens urgently or emergently, I don't want to be worried about you getting an IV in. I just want it to be there. So I think it's really, really personal choice. Yeah, I always say to my classes, like, look, if you put your hand up and say, hey, knock yourself out, this isn't going to disturb me at all. Go put it in. Then fine. And I say sometimes to my class, like, how would you feel sitting through class today having a HEPLOC in? If you could still focus and be comfortable, then it won't disturb you very much. In the grand scheme, this is a lesser controversial matter than some of the other things we talk about. And just for clarification, too, there is no needle left in the arm. It's soft. It's just a soft catheter that goes in. You use a needle to insert it, but then you pull the needle out and the catheter, the soft, pliable catheter is left. So you really don't even notice it's there. I think we said all the same points and agreed on all the points, but I think we each have a preference, you toward and me against an applause. If I were, if I were personally having a birth in hospital, I would decline it. Yeah, I would. I definitely would too. But I think, I guess I'm just trying to make sure that people clearly understand the difference between a HEPLOC and an IV hookup. Right. 
But it's one step closer. That's the whole thing. It's like now they're going to be like, well, let's just give you a little Pitocin. It's right here. That's, I think, what we have to be careful of in this country because we are right. overusing those interventions as, you know, routinely when it isn't, you know, it isn't supported by evidence and we're having worse outcomes as a result. And it can start with something as seemingly innocuous as a HEPLOC. And that's why that's I right. think this woman is that's questioning. That's true. Yes. And it's also anything that is mandated. Like if I don't want to put the hospital gown on when I get in there, sorry, I'm going to wear my clothes. That's another thing. Yeah. I talk about that too. You don't have to wear that hospital gown. No. Wear what you want to wear. So. Right. And and you can say no to this too. On that note. That's a wrap. Maybe our listeners would choose to sign off now and have an orgasm as you suggested earlier. (laughs) It's always a good time to have an orgasm. Be our guest. If you enjoyed our podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share a favorite episode or two. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Down to Birth Show or contact us and review show notes at downtoverseshow.com. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtoverseshow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in. And as always... Hear everyone and listen to yourself. But I don't know what this stands for. Um, it says, if I'm trying to conceive, TTC, what's that? Try, trying to conceive. Oh, that's what that stands for. There's, a, there's, an, acronym, <laughs> there's an acronym for trying to conceive. Real? Is that necessary? <laughs> there is now. It wasn't around back when I was oh, in midwifery school.